0: A former U.S. defense secretary says Britain's defense cuts have gone too far.
1: I think it ought to be done much more gradually, with a wary
2: eye to the global environment, not willy-nilly as a matter of just making the budget numbers work.
0: What's going on behind the scenes in Syria, and will the West have to talk to Assad, and deathbed remorse from the inventor of the AK-47? The former US Defence Secretary Robert Gates said today that UK forces won't be able to have a big international role because of defence cuts.
1: With the
2: fairly substantial reductions in defence spending in Great Britain, what we're finding is that they won't have full spectrum capabilities and the ability to be a full partner as they have been in the past.
0: But hadn't the MOD already said this? Let's clear up the confusion. I'm joined now by the Times special correspondent Michael Evans and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to you. Um, First of all, Michael, everyone seems quite surprised he said this, but it's not really that surprising, is it?
3: Not not really. I think the Americans have been concerned for some time, actually, the uh, the current uh, head of the... American army said pretty well the same sort of thing uh, last year. So I don't think it's greatly surprising. I think uh, the trouble is it's Robert Gates. So he was a highly respected uh, defence secretary. And uh, if he's saying it, I think the, the Brits have to uh, sit up and take notice. Although I see that David Cameron has already uh, rejected his, uh, what, he's claimed, what he's saying.
0: Christopher, do, do you think the Brits will be that upset by these kind of comments? No. I mean, as Michael says, you
2: know, we've heard... It's not so much that the Americans have said it, but, you know, the United Kingdom is saying it. If you listen to some of the things that were in, in front of the Defence... Uh, House of Commons Defence Committee, for example. Yes, we are making cuts. We're going to have fewer forces... We're withdrawing, withdrawing from Afghanistan, withdrawing from Germany, etc. We're heading for 2020, Army 2020. You've got a different shape of what you've got to do. And therefore, the, the most important thing that Gates didn't say in that interview, but he says in his book, is that politicians quite often don't know what to do with their military don't know how to handle their military, don't, the best use of their military. I think that's far more important. But the United Kingdom doesn't fancy and doesn't expect to go off and do an
0: Afghanistan anywhere in the near future. Michael Evans, could Britain have a more efficient use of forces?
3: Well, I, I think they've, you know, they've been reviewing this for a long, long time. The trouble is that the whole thing is based on the need to make cuts. And when you need to make cuts in the budget, uh, you, you don't really make the best... And most sensible decisions. So, uh, you know, the only way to be to have, a, so let's say, a more efficient military service is to cancel something major which you decide you don't need, and then focus all your money on the things you do need. Well, obviously, we've still got a nuclear deterrent, that's very quite expensive, and we're building this vast, great aircraft carrier, which although it won't be available till 2020, um, is going to be pretty well. It's, it is very expensive. Um, I think. I think one of the things that's uh, rather amusing about Mr Robert Gates of course is the fact that the Americans are doing exactly the same and making big cuts
0: Michael, just answer that phone, with you, for a second. Christopher, um, surely this ties in with the UK's cha- changing foreign policy, all of this, and it's yeah, just it what does. we expected.
3: It, it does.
2: Uh, let's put it in some perspective. Uh, uh, Robert Gates, very quiet, very in, in intelligent former Defence Secretary to two presidents, uh, writes a book, as he's just done, just published, in which he says, for example, that Western politicians don't know how to handle uh, their military. Comes to the United Kingdom to promote the book, gets onto a BBC programme, BBC programme, ask him a question, gosh, (laughs) horror, that's it. The story runs in perspective, a, the British government has, knows this and has said so, uh, B, the British military, rightly or wrongly, uh, having to say this is how we're going to plan for the future, but please tell us what you want us to do in the future. And that is the complexity of the organisation. I know Michael says about we're building a big aircraft carrier. Well, we're building two aircraft carriers. One will be at sea at the time. You've also got to build frigates uh, to go with it. You've also got to put airplanes on it, American airplanes on it. This is a huge project. And also you're getting to the position where you can say, look, if we've got that, then we've got to be in the business of force projection. Now, if you're in the business of force projection, there uh, are not many countries in the world that can do that with an aircraft carrier. Uh,
0: Michael, um, I take it you're still there. Yeah. Is he making the point, really, that British politicians just don't know how to use their forces properly?
3: I think all, there, there is a suspicion, and you, you can see it from his book, that uh, he's not particularly happy with, uh, with the sort of relationship, if you like, between... The, but the White House and the, the senior arm, uh, armed forces chiefs, uh, and I, I suspect he feels the same about the UK. That you know politicians uh, have to make these decisions, and they don't really listen to the to the generals and the admirals. I think that's uh, pretty unfair, to be honest. I think uh, uh, there's been a very good review of defence requirements in this country by uh, different uh, government leaders, and uh, they've come up with uh, what they think is the best. Obviously. We're not going to be able to do everything. We've pretty well been punching above our weight, as a awful phrase, but I think we've been doing it uh, for some years. And we've now got to a point where, for a lot of reasons, mainly um, financial, we've got to be able to do what we can do. We can't do everything. We
0: never really could. I mean, do what we can do. But, you know, when you hear what the Prime Minister said, Christopher, that um, Britain is a first class pe- player, still having the fourth largest defence budget anywhere in the world, investing in future capabilities, and talking about the percentage that's spent on defence, I mean, it is something you do have to take into account, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's quite right what he, in, in what he says, until you get down to the operational detail and what the British, British politicians ask people to do. I mean, let's just put this in some context. Um, when America because it was an American who said it, uh, we, we then get this sort of next stage, oh, the Americans are saying so-and-so. No, they're not. Robert Gates is saying so-and-so. I mean, he's not in office, etc., although he may reflect some, some, some sort of intuitions in, in Washington. The important thing here is that the United Kingdom has very good armed forces, it's reducing, it's a bit of a muddle, I think, the way it's reducing, and some people say the wrong reductions, the wrong reconstructions, etc. But also warfare, of what they face at the moment, is also changing. Once you've got a policy to say, right, we're not going to go carting off to somewhere like Afghanistan again, we're getting into this sort of, the whole idea of a new form of warfare, um, then, then that has got to be, not simply reconsidered but it's got to people have got to say okay if we're going to have the armed forces to be able to do that uh, um, then we have to remember that armed forces take maybe 10, 15, 20 years to reconstruct and to put into place and it's what the military planners and the chiefs of staff are not always innocents in this, it's what military planners can actually say this is what we could do with the armed forces that we've now got. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong, but with what we have. And it's up to the, uh, the military to understand that. It's also up to the politicians when they say to the military, can you go and do that? The military doesn't say immediately, oh, yeah, we can go and do that, simply because they want
0: to justify what they've got. Michael Evans, a final thought from you.
3: Uh, yes, I think the most important thing is that uh, probably both uh, Britain and America are not going to contemplate having another Afghanistan. I mean, I think those days are over. So you know, it's, it does make it possible to redesign your armed forces so that you're not going to be involved in some very long, long-running, uh, heavily man-powered uh, sort of operation. We can't do that anymore. The Americans are considering that they, you know, they, they can still do it, obviously, because they're bigger. But but uh, we, we feel we can't. But we can still provide a pretty good contribution with some very good capabilities for any future operation involving the Americans.
0: All right, Michael Evans from The Times, thanks for your time today. To Syria now, two developments here. There are reports that Western security people have been in Damascus and the Geneva Conference designed to get all sides talking is already looking like a no-show for the Syrian opposition fighters. Sir Andrew Green is the former ambassador to Syria and he joins us now. Thanks for your time today, Sir Andrew. Do we hear about, what we do hear about these security people in Damascus, what do we know exactly?
1: Well, we don't know about any such talks, and we're not likely to, but I think uh, they could well have happened. Uh, After all, intelligence services talk to whoever they need to, uh, sometimes on a deniable basis. Uh, I'm not saying that the Brits have done so, but for sure some intelligence services will have talked to Assad's regime because they have considerable concerns about the nature of some of the uh, ...Islamic fighters in, in northern syria
0: Yeah, indeed. And this, this rift between the rebel forces has turned into a, a three-sided civil war.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, which makes the, the situation on the ground extremely complicated... Uh, ...and also extremely complicated for outsiders. Um, the fact of the matter, I think, is that the, the, the nature of the opposition in uh, Syria... ...has changed pretty substantially... Uh, from some uh, would-be Democrats uh, demonstrating in the street for very good reason uh, to literally thousands of Islamic extremists in different and conflicting groups um, who are uh, opposing the regime. And that's a different uh, kettle of fish altogether.
0: So what does Britain do in this situation? Has it simply got to talk to Assad about this?
1: I don't think we should talk to Assad himself. I'm not sure he'd listen anyway. I think the focus has to be on Geneva. uh, This is not something that any particular country, not even the Americans or the Russians, can sort out. Uh, I think that uh, we have to try to get together uh, all those parties that have... Uh, Serious influence uh, on the situation. And that means, uh, as far as Assad is concerned, it's not us, it's not the Americans, it's the Russians and the Iranians. And they've got to be there, and they've got to be persuaded uh, that uh, this or that is in their interest. And of course, the Syrian rebels, because if
0: they don't show, there's no progress at all.
1: Indeed. And they may not show, uh, because um, one of the problems here, as you quite often get, actually, uh, is that none of the uh, people actually engaged in this, want to cease fire at this point because uh, neither, none of them have a victory. Normally, when, you, when you're when you starting a peace negotiation, it's because either both sides are exhausted or one side has been defeated. But we're not there. What, what, what we have is an appalling humanitarian situation, but not an actual defeat.
0: Christopher, um, easy to make comments with hindsight, but did Britain back the wrong rebels?
2: I'm not sure they should have backed any rebels. Um, that's the first thing. And I think that's the fundamental thing. Will, that will is, you uh, you sorry, go around to the Foreign uh, Office, you go around to <clears throat> Sir Andrew's old office, and you, you, you talk to them, and they say, Well, it, it seemed right at the time. Well, a lot of people say it didn't seem, including Sir Andrew
0: would have said, You know, it didn't seem right at the time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, thing. Sir Andrew, about that, because did that surprise you at the time when they said that?
1: when Britain came out quite forcefully. I I think Christopher and I are on the same page here. I think it was a very serious mistake to have got involved in in any of this uh, uh, in in the first place. Um, Worse than that, uh, we, the West, led the Syrian rebels up the garden path. Uh, They thought that we would move in and help them remove uh, President Assad and his regime. It's not him, it's his regime. Uh, on the pattern of libya which by the way is not turning out terribly well uh, but they quite specifically set up a thing called the Syrian National Council that was on the same pattern they thought we were going to come in and help them and we backed off and uh, we shouldn't have got in in the first place christopher let me just th- just think about these people whether they are not they've been in damascus what we do know is that uh,
2: is if we like we call them security or military uh, assessors analysts experts have been in jordan and they've been talking on the Jordan border, and mm-hmm. some of the people that have been they've been talking to, that you wouldn't say publicly what they've been talking about, what they have been trying to get at is, A, the strength of the Islamists, B, the dispositions... If they are accurate, which ties in with uh, GCHQ, with American satellite intelligence gathering, etc. The other thing is the the important part of this is that when we were saying that we must get the Russians and the Iranians along... Uh, etc. You've got to remember the Russians and the Iranians are supporting Assad or they are, more importantly they are supporting uh, the Iranians are supporting Assad perhaps because they're Shias, but, the, but they're both supporting because they don't think there should be a rebellion. They, they don't like this idea of being rebellion. And so if we backed the wrong rebels where do we get to now? Could it be that the United States and the United Kingdom by saying to the rebels, you've got to get yourself along to Geneva Otherwise, no Geneva. Is it the fact that they begin to realize that eventually they will have to talk not to Assad, not even to his brother, you know, the the, the, the military leader, but they've got to talk to people who may represent a future Mm. uh, government and not a rebel government, and that gets very, very complicated. So we're into this great thing, which Sandra's been at for donkey's years, and it's talks
1: about talks about talks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sandra, I don't know if you're advising the British government or not, but... uh, No,
1: I'm not. I wish wish they would listen. Yeah,
0: (laughs) what would you say to them?
1: Well, I think we now have to accept, uh, taking forward what uh, Christopher's just said, we have to accept that the present regime in Damascus is not going to be removed. The fact of the matter is they have absolutely firm support from the two key players, Russia and Iran. And the Russians fear that, these Islamic, that, that if the regime goes, Islamic extremists will be a major force, if not the dominant force in any subsequent regime, and that they themselves will then pose a threat to their own soft underbelly uh, of, of uh, um, s- states in in, in in Russia. So they're not going to have it, and nor is Putin going to have the, the the blow to his prestige that would involve, given the enormous benefit he's had from his uh, operations in Syria. They won't have it, the Iranians won't have it, uh, both for the religious reason that, that uh, Christopher mentioned and because they are in a... a struggle with, with Saudi Arabia, the leader of the Sunnis.
0: Indeed, and, and Christopher, what Sir Andrew's saying there, I mean, it's, it's a, the stability of S- Syria will affect the whole region.
1: The whole region
2: is smouldering, uh-huh. and that's not a cliche, it is. Mm. What's been happening in Lebanon, for example, yep. could extend the war right the way through. Don't forget Israel sitting there. The Gulf mm. states themselves are nervous of what is happening, and what we're seeing mm. is the great conflict of sheer and Sony, and building up. And we haven't really even got into the discussion of how the, all this would affect the uh, Gulf states, as for another day, perhaps.
0: Christopher, yeah. stay with us. Andrew Green, thank you very much for your time today. SITREP
4: with Kate
0: Still to come, Mikhail Kalashnikov's spiritual pain over the weapon he invented.
1: Sit SITREP.
0: James R. Bethnot is to resign as chair of the House of Commons Defence Committee. We've been wondering who his replacement should be. The BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson, joins us now from Westminster. Hello, Rob.
4: Hello, Kate.
0: Do we know why James R. Buthnot's stepping down?
4: Oh, we do. He said so. It's about uh, not wanting to have any perceived conflict of his interest. His new job? Well, he doesn't know what his new job is yet. I mean, that's the the problem that he's got. He knows that he doesn't want to be an MP anymore. He's going to step down at the next election, 2015. So what he's saying is, look, it might look a bit off if he was... Being on a committee that's supposed to scrutinise the defence industry, defence in every single way, and then, you never know, end up as working in one of those jobs, as these people often <laughs> do, don't they? Work for a defence contractor or something.
0: And who do you think should replace him?
4: Oh, goodness, it's way above my pay grade, Kate. Hmm. Ask ask Chris, ask some of those other smart people. That you- <laughs>
0: Christopher, (laughs) smart person, who should replace him?
2: The the term "passing the buck."
0: (laughs) Well, let's put it it in
2: some uh, some perspective, right? Um, A chairman has to be elected, uh, not necessarily just appointed. Just as the since 2010, all the eleven. 12 members of the committee have to be elected by their fellow peers. So when uh, Arbuthnot got the gig, uh, it was 200-and-something votes that he got, and he went against Julian Lewis, and Julian Lewis had to bow out, etc. So that's the, the, the democracy of it. So the person that gets the job is not a high flyer, may not be the sharpest you know, knife in the skittle... But it's got to be somebody who is probably not going to get a ministerial job. An elder statesman, almost. If you wanted to pick somebody from the, uh, the, the uh, committee itself, I'd probably say something like uh, 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 Gazelle Stewart. Somebody who's because got, she's got the background. Uh, she's got the, she knows how the committee works. She's a, she's a safe and a quiet pair of hands. You don't want a rabble rouser. You don't want somebody. Got
4: to, got to be a Tory, though. I think uh, Chris.
2: Well, it has and That wouldn't take
4: much. But for what, so in terms so of so
0: personality, would a Margaret Hodge do the job? That kind well, of she's person. not a Tory I,
4: either. But no, but uh, in, in terms of personality, life, though. No, I, I know what you mean, and, and it 's certainly true that that margaret i 'm sure, sure she wouldn 't mind me saying this, no doubt she 'd be flattered, but we do tend to see her at the BBC an awful lot i mean she <laughs> pretty much have her own desk here, such as the <laughs> success of her committees getting publicity uh, and James R. Busnutt, and again I, I guess he wouldn 't mind me saying this i 've always thought he was a thoroughly decent, very kind of gentlemanly sort of chap who you know is perhaps less on the on the publicity trail than uh, the, than margaret so could could defence do with someone that puts it on the map? Well, uh, no doubt it possibly could.
2: But what do you do? You have, the, you have the Jack Russells, and they're the, I mean, I don't mean gentleman Jack Russell, but Jack Russell. But uh, Bob Stuart springs
0: to mind. <coughs>
2: it does spring to very few minds, actually. Um, <laughs> you, have, you have the Jack Russells. Uh, he would raise
0: the profile, though. He'd he, get people talking.
2: Uh, no, he wouldn't. Boris might. Uh, but you don't <laughs> want it talking. Like, but ser- seriously, all right, you're going to have a Tory. The sort of Tory you probably would need is somebody that everybody respects, including the people you've got to get information from. And so, a Malcolm Rifkin, although he's got mm. another job, it's that sort of yes, person... Yes, I think...
4: I- I think I think you're right, Christopher. I mean, what, what I did hear, I, I was trying to sniff around, see what I could find out, and uh, the, uh, I did hear a couple of names. I'm, I'm not going to go them on. F- uh, well, I'm not come, come on, on Rob. No, because come I, on. Know, I don't He's know how serious. Come on, it, so yeah, he must <laughs> do. No, I don't know how serious they are. But, I, uh, <laughs> but, but, but to back up uh, Christopher's point, <laughs> you don't know
0: how serious we are. Come on. <laughs> some,
4: some, some some chap, you know, it's like very Dickensian. There's some chap in a corridor. You know, he did he did think that it was likely that uh, probably a big character was the mm. word that he used would emerge, which would emerge. Christopher says, you know, it's an election of all the MPs. And don't forget, yes, it has to be a, a Conservative, but it has to be somebody that uh, sort of gets on with Labour because it's uh, an election of everybody.
2: So it's not a Junior Lewis sort of character, is it? Uh, possibly not.
4: So, Christopher,
0: just, you just outline what this person's going to have to deal with.
2: Well, A, Conservative, B, a lot of experience, B, the respect, a si- a, a, quite a quiet and a safe pair of hands. He's not only got to direct or help direct... The, the committee and its advisors take advice, because they're not all MPs, into the big questions. And there are very big questions for the next five years, into 2020, you know, seeing through the whole uh, restructuring of, of the forces. It's got to have that. So he's got to be able to keep the the, the the committee in hand, and he's got to have that respect. And when he gets up and does the interviews, people have got to listen and say, this is This is not party political. This is simply the subject that is being discussed.
0: All right, Chris will stay with us. Rob Watson, thank you very much for your time today. This is
3: BFBS Cigarette.
0: The man who invented the world's most famous weapon appears to have admitted remorse on his deathbed. Mikhail Kalashnikov always said he had no regrets about designing the AK 47 assault rifle. But before he died last month, he said he suffered spiritual pain thinking about how many people it killed. We're joined by Dr. Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Uh, Dr. Rogers, hello. Um, first, what made the AK 47 so popular?
5: It was popular because it was incredibly robust. Um, Basically, Kanishkakov devised it for Russian conscripts in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when the guns they had were pretty hopeless. He was from a, a peasant family. He tinkered with things almost from his youth. He'd served in the army... And when he was in hospital during the war having sustained injuries, he just listened to the ordinary soldiers complain bitterly about the gun. So he designed something to be as tough and as easy to use as possible. Incredibly simple, apparently. Mm. And uh, it was accepted, I think, in 1947, hence the 47 in the name, and became standard, but of the millions produced since, at least half of them have been being produced completely unofficially.
0: And uh, And one of them handled by Christopher Lee.
5: Yes, indeed, I'm sure Christopher would have handled one. <laughs> I haven't myself, I must admit, but uh, it, it was an extraordinary system designed, really, in the immediate aftermath of the incredibly bitter Second World War. But taking off, as people said, with guerrilla and irregular forces right across the world, with probably responsible for a huge death toll in, in all the different conflicts.
0: And Christopher, d- despite what it's done, this weapon he didn't actually make any money out of it.
5: No.
2: I mean, he, he didn't. It, it's rather like the uh, sort of Mikoyan Bureau with aircraft um, didn't make a great deal of money. What he did produce, is, as Paul says, is a reliable bit of kit. It was also um, the sort of thing that you could wrap in a bit of sacking, dig in a hole, pull it in, take it out couple of months later when you came back that way and fire it i fired the chinese version there was a very good no i would do wouldn't i on the cheap. where did you find that no no it was a, it was a test firing but i will tell you i tell you this is the important thing about for me as as a very you know not familiar with that sort of weapon at all really i fired that for a whole day um, and then I fired the Russian version. It was no difference at all and then I fired what was then a new weapon for the british forces, which which was the s a eighty and mm. I remember sort of standing there with the with the half colonel who was showing, showing me this at, uh, at uh, warminster and I said, Do you know, I think apart from the american carbine the m sixteen I think I prefer the Kalashnikov. He said, I think a lot of us prefer the Kalashnikov. And what happened to the uh, the history of the SA80 after that is one of the weapons which, in some ways, you wish the British Army had never invented.
0: Dr. Rogers, um, this sort of remorse that was expressed, though, is it common among the kind of people that have invented weapons or bombs?
5: There are very few people who have actually invented weapon systems that had the effect of the Kalashnikov. It was often a group thing. But one can think of two more general examples. I mean, obviously... Alfred Nobel uh, who founded Dynamite and basically built up the Bofors Company uh, right at the end of his life had a lot of remorse and in fact in his will of course he established all the different prizes and his close associate Bertha von Suttner uh, essentially persuaded uh, the authorities at the time that there should be peace prize so that's the origin of that. I suppose the other very strong example is some of the people who worked on the Manhattan Project. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of Joe Rotblatt uh, who went on to be the keeper person in the Pugwash movement. I think Rottblatt was the only person who actually resigned from the Manhattan Project while it was underway uh, of any status. Others really got hugely uh, dischanted, dismayed with what they were doing afterwards. But Rottblatt was rather different, and he devoted what, nearly 50 years of his remaining life to trying to get better relations between the Soviets and the West, mainly through the medium of science, scientific change. Joan
2: Rottblatt didn't see, like a lot of them, didn't see what in fact were invented you know, Manhattan yep. was the invention of basically of, of nuclear weapons, mm. and he could see immediately this is terrible. Uh, and in fact, I remember going through uh, some papers with him in in, in the sixties, and he was showing how little we knew about the consequences of what mm. the effects of nuclear weapons... The other, But the, there are other people who, who are on the sort of fringe of all this. I don't know, uh, uh, um, Paul, Niels Bohr, people like yes, that, yes, who made a great contribution to this thing. We have mm. to be careful what we invent.
0: Very very briefly, bring things up, up to date. Uh, Dr Rogers, do you think that people will regret drones in the future?
5: Oh, I think that is a whole new area. The armed drones, I think, they look so simple, so straightforward, but with the beginning of an entire period of proliferation of armed drones... I'm drone told that systems,
0: drone's not even a popular word anymore. Uh,
5: no, I, I think it's become unacceptable. If you remember that originally uh, the Sellafield plant in Cumbria was called Windscale, but that became unacceptable, so they changed the name. They're now remotely piloted air systems, which but sounds much more But drones are bees as well. They're nice people. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed, yes. Dr. <laughs> yes.
0: Paul Rogers, thank you very much for your time today. You. Um, Christopher, just talking about invention, um, there's been hundreds of Chinese experts working on a new fast jet.
2: Fabulous. Uh, if you look at it... it's Hypersonic. Like a- Hypersonic. That means it's over... F- 5G. I mean, 5,000 miles an hour, but I mean, it looks like a cone, a V-shaped cone. Um, and the, the theory is that it'll do up to 9,000 miles an hour. Put that in some perspective. A rifle bullet, we've just been talking about a Kalashnikov, a, a Kalashnikov rifle bullet goes at 900, 1,960 miles an hour. This might do 9,000. And
0: it, it might do what, exactly? A
2: cruise missile. Well, the idea is that you you'll go so fast in certain altitudes that you won't be detected or that you won't be able to counter it and the, perhaps therefore carrying the very thing that Joseph Rockblatt was so much against, and that's a small nuclear weapon, maybe a multiple warhead nu- nuclear weapon. That's the theory. What's fascinating, of course, is the Americans have sort of picked this up and they're discovering it. Now they're having to turn around and say, look, we've got to divert... Uh, sort of money and people and technology into trying to counter this and a whole new industry will will, will come up in between boeing uh, rockwell etc in the united states just because the chinese have invented this
0: briefly other stuff around this week egypt
2: egypt uh, this is the last day of the polls we are going to see whether On the, the new, new constitution con- the new constitution which basically will outlaw uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, in, in some elements of it, they be suddenly become uh, uh, traitors uh, and, and treasonists, uh, whereas last year or two years ago, of course, it was a part of the dem- democratic process. Piracy. Piracy, less of it, you know, off the Somali coast, um, probably down by 40% over 2011, 2013, uh, yeah, down by, but there was still Two hundred and sixty-four cases of piracy off that coast, and, and we think it's a success story.
0: And a quarter of a million pounds of public money spent on portraits of MPs. It's over a sh-
2: it's over it's over a peer, but yeah, I mean Tony Blair portrait of him, Diana Abbott portrait, and you can go right through all these MPs have got portraits themselves. It's public money. It's our money. We're not spending very much on it. You see, I mean it works out about eight or nine thousand. Uh, pounds a portrait, but I was trying to think. I mean, um, I mean, being, having got a downstairs loo at home, <laughs> uh, I know you haven't. I mean, not I out in uh, the garden <laughs> then? Not anymore. Out a downstairs loo at home. I wonder whose portrait I was sort of. I would put in.
0: Go on then, a military uh, figure. Has uh, Well, if it's well, the trouble uh, is, is it a show of respect or disrespect, though, Christopher?
2: Well, I think it's somebody. You, every time you pass, you want to wink at. <laughs> <laughs> and say, yes, Gov, you, you really, really got that right. I think I'd probably, I'd probably have a, a painting of someone we never see now, and that's Orkin Leck and what he did in North Africa during the Second World you War. You know,
0: having a French husband and having Napoleon in the Louvre, I think. Oh, he's a disaster, that guy. Well, He had good to place. walk away.
2: He tried to invade England in, in, in 1803 and had to pull out. Good all he place. left was Boulogne, which he dredged.
0: And there I shall stop you, Christopher Lee. That's all we have time for this week. Thankfully, if you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS, sit rep. Thanks for listening. We're back again next week. Bye-bye.
1: Sport, Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.